<clears throat> Father in heaven, I pray uh, even now that you would help us as we uh, consider this passage of scripture again. We've been here for some weeks, but I pray that you would enable us uh, to grab hold of this particular point today and that it would um, sink deep within us uh, and that we too, as they, would be devoted to praying. God, there's so much that causes us to resist uh, not only hearing your word, but resist uh, praying. And so I pray that you would overcome all of that today uh, and enable us to hear and do uh, this. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Acts in chapter 2. I want to read again verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, in these verses, as we know, uh, Luke, who is the author here, Luke gives us a glimpse into the lives of these early followers of Jesus. Uh, You remember, I suspect that all of this really began on a Jewish feast day called Pentecost. Jesus, after his resurrection, had told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem, uh, and the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, that they would receive power, and they would be witnesses of Jesus, of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, no doubt, the fact that he rules and reigns, and all that's, that's in him and from him. And they were to be witnesses uh, of all of that. And so they did just that. They stayed in Jerusalem. And on a day of, called Pentecost, again, this Jewish feast day where men from all over the world would come to celebrate, uh, Jewish men would come to celebrate this feast. On that day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. People heard a, row, a loud uh, uh, sound like a loud rushing wind, which was the very presence of God. Tongues of fire uh, came upon their head. Uh, tongues meaning something would be communicated. Fire meaning it would be the very presence of God, just like um, God showed himself as fire to Moses. This fire was there. And indeed, something was communicated from God, the, the, the great works, the great deeds of God. And these people heard the disciples of Jesus speak to them about the mighty deeds of God in their own languages, languages these disciples had never learned, but yet still they were being heard in their own languages. Uh, and then Peter uh, uh, put, uh, put some feet to that in a message when he said, what you're observing is what Joel talked about, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It wouldn't just be on Jews, but on Gentiles too, not just on men, but on women, the rich and the poor, the old and the young, the slave, as, as well as, 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 as the free man. All kinds of people would be receiving the Holy Spirit. He said, this is what that's about. 
And he began to testify about Jesus. Again, it shouldn't surprise anyone because Jesus had said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses. And so he began to speak of Jesus, his life, excuse me, death and resurrection, uh, and how in his ascension that he was made both Lord and Christ, meaning that he was the very one who is the prophet, the one who reveals God. He's the priest, the one who represents us before God. He's the sacrifice. He's the king. He is, in fact, the Lord. And when those who were uh, there that day, those who had assembled because they had heard this great noise and wondered what was going on, uh, they were cut to the heart, the scripture says. It says, what should we do? And so Peter says, you need to repent. That is, you once thought you knew all about life. You once thought you knew about this Jesus whom you crucified and rejected, but you were wrong. Repent of that. Now understand really who he is, understand who you are, understand your need, repent, and believe, trust in him, turn from your wrong understanding, your wrong thoughts, your wrong life, and trust in Christ. And he says, be baptized, that is, identify yourself with Jesus, and in so doing, your sins will be forgiven, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for this gift is not simply for us, but it's for you, and for our children, and those who are far off, and those who are near. And the scripture says that about 3,000 were added on that day. So the question comes, what are they now to do? And so just in in these early days of the church, we get a glimpse from Luke into what they did. The scripture says, Luke says, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, they, they centered their lives around listening to these apostles. And of course they would. They would wonder, what has happened to us? Who is God really? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach us. Help us to understand. And they would go to the apostles because they were the very ones chosen by Jesus. They were the very ones appointed by him uh, to do this teaching. He had said in a very special way to them that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and would reveal to them the truth about Jesus. And even Jesus himself had taught them. They had been with him through the course of his life. And even after his resurrection, Jesus came to them and he taught them. And he says, here here is me in in, in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch and the Law, in the narrative passages, in the Psalms and in the Prophets. This is me. So he taught them all about himself. And so so these early ones came to the apostles and said, teach us. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And though they may not have had all their theology all put together, the truth is that when the Holy Spirit comes uh, upon us, he not only joins us up together with God, but he unites believers together as well. Later, the Apostle Paul would say, for we have all been baptized in one spirit into one body. And so there's this uniting of us together because Jesus work on the cross didn't only take away the enmity between us and God but also us and each other so that we could be joined together and so they devoted themselves to the fellowship and it was a radical fellowship it was a fellowship of love because they would learn from the disciples the command of Jesus that they were to love each other as he had loved them a new commandment Jesus said I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you in fact he said Jesus did By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. And so they would learn that and they would love one another as Jesus had loved them. 
And so when there was any in need, they sold possessions in order to, to, to get enough so that all would have what they needed, so there would, there would be none needy among them. And so they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They broke bread together. That is, they shared meals together. The very sustenance of life they shared together in fellowship one with another. And these meals would even take on greater significance because, because they were the very people of God and they would know that God had given to them this covenant meal, this communion, this Lord's Supper that Jesus had given to them. And he said, when you break bread, when you drink wine together, you need to do that in remembrance of me. You need to think about me. You need to remember uh, who I am and all that I have done and everything that's true about me and everything that's true about you as you trust in me. That there is forgiveness of sins in me. That there is justification that is a declaration from God that you're righteous in his sight. Uh, There is the work of the Holy Spirit in you to sanctify you, that is to make you holy, to conform you into the image of Jesus himself. There is the awaited time of glorification when Christ returns. At your death, of course, you'll be in his very presence. But he says, because of me, a day will come when I will, in fact, return. You'll receive new bodies. You'll, you'll, You'll live with me on the new earth forever and ever. And at that point in time, there'll be no more tears. There'll be no injustice. There'll be no sadness. There'll be no grief. There'll be no death. There'll be no poverty. He says, that's all true in me. So when you come together and you break bread and you drink wine, that's what you're to remember. And indeed, that remembrance is to be something that you do together because you're going to proclaim my death until I come. So you're proclaiming all that's true. And one of the ways that you proclaim that is you come together. You take this together, in love together. And in taking it in love together, you're recognizing who I am, what I've done. And you're recognizing who you are in me. Not only individually, but corporately. And by coming together and loving each other, you're proclaiming that I'm the Christ and that you belong to me. So there they were, doing all of this. And one more thing. They devoted themselves to the prayers. That's how it's said literally. Again, no no big surprise devoting themselves to the prayers because there were times set aside for Jewish men, especially to pray during the course of Uh, of the day. In fact, when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, which I think actually will be next week, um, get to chapter 3, we read this. Now, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour uh, in the afternoon. And so here they were going to pray in the temple these times of praying. And so they devoted themselves to praying. No doubt praying individually, praying together. But they devoted themselves to praying. Again, no surprise. They would be accustomed to praying. They knew that Moses prayed. They knew that Abraham prayed. Uh, They would have the Psalms before them. Prayers of petition. Prayers for holiness. Prayers for protection. Prayers for provision. uh, Prayers of praise. Prayers of confession. You can read David's very intimate prayers of confession in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And so those prayers there. They would know the prayer of Jehoshaphat when he prayed because he was surrounded by all of his enemies. Uh, They would know the prayer of Nehemiah when he was called to go and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and felt completely inadequate to do that because he was completely inadequate to do that. They would know of the prayer of Nehemiah. They would know of Daniel's prayers. The scripture said that he prayed uh, three times a day towards Jerusalem. No surprise that he would pray towards Jerusalem because when 
Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem. His prayer was that God would hear all of the prayers prayed toward the temple, toward that place and in that place because for them that was the very dwelling place of God, the very presence of God. And so Solomon prayed, God, hear our prayers for protection, for forgiveness, for provision when people pray towards the temple. And so no surprise that there would be some sort of instinct here for this group of people to pray. But no doubt even as they would hear the apostles teach them about Jesus, it would spur them on even more. Because for Jesus, praying was something assumed. Jesus prayed all the time. Prayed at night often. All night on certain occasions. So much so that the disciples of Jesus came to him one day and said, Ask, uh, teach us to pray. I must confess to you, if hanging out with Jesus for a while, I probably would have said, teach me to walk on water. Uh, you know? But so impressive, if you will, was Jesus praying that that's what caught their attention. Teach us to pray. And so he did teach them to pray. In fact, he said many things to them about praying to encourage them on. For instance, in Luke chapter 11, verse 5, after Jesus lays out what we call the Lord's Prayer, he says to them, Which of you, who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, and the door is now shut and my children are with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And Jesus is saying, listen, if, if that's what human beings are like, if they give in just because you badger them enough, just think about God. He's not like that. He loves you. And he's not going to be like your friend that you have to badger. You, you can get it from your friend if you badger him enough, but God isn't like that. So pray to him. And then Jesus goes on. Verse 9, he says, I tell you, ask. And it will be given to you. Seek and you'll, you'll find. Knock. And it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So this is Jesus' encouragement to us to pray. He's saying, why wouldn't you pray? You ask your dad for stuff, and he gives you stuff. And he's evil. Why would you not ask your Heavenly Father to give to you? Luke chapter 18. Again, the teaching of Jesus, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You get the sense, as, as Luke adds that little introduction to this, that if we don't pray, we will lose heart. He says, I want you always to pray. Jesus told this parable, the point of it is keep praying so that you don't lose heart. Implied, if you don't keep praying, you'll lose heart. So in some sense he's saying keep praying because it encourages you. He tells this story. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus is saying, look, here's a, here's a human situation. It's an unjust judge. And notice, when people badger him enough, he'll give in and give justice. God isn't like an unjust judge. God is the just judge. Won't he give justice? Readily? Speedily? Given his very nature. And then of course, the Apostle John uh, records for us Jesus' uh, encouragements to pray. For instance, in John chapter 14 and verse uh, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Then chapter 15 and verse 7. Again, Jesus. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask... Whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. And then verse 16. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And then chapter 16, verse 23. Again, Jesus. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive uh, that your joy may be full. In fact, as we, as we read through the scripture, we can't but help think praying is crucial to us. Praying is like breathing to us. Uh, praying is of the utmost importance to us. Uh, for instance, the Apostle Paul in Colossians in chapter 4, verse 2, puts it like this. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Uh, or, we could translate that, uh, be devoted to prayer. So that your life, this should be true of you. Everybody should know this is true of you. Your, your devotion to praying so true like that. In Romans, in chapter 12, a very interesting sentence to say the least. Verse 12 of Romans 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, to me that's an interesting sentence because I'm thinking if I'm constant in prayer, I would have no tribulation because I would be praying that I wouldn't have any tribulation. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the ticket, does it, there? Uh, hmm. 
But anyway, that's interesting. Um, we read through uh, the scripture, the Apostle Paul prays for many. I won't go into all of his, his prayers there. He asks that people pray for him. For instance, uh, in Ephesians, uh, in chapter 6, verse um, uh, 18, he writes to us, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to the end, to that end, keep alert with our perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So he's saying, pray for each other. And then verse 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth uh, bodily, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains and I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So he's asking that they would uh, pray for him, that he can pray, that he can speak the gospel uh, boldly. Um, James uh, speaks to us uh, of praying as well. And, and, and again, great encouragement uh, to pray. In James 5, uh, he puts it like this. Verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man, of, a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. He's saying, pray. Uh, Peter, the apostle, puts it like this in 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So if you understand where we are, if you understand that the end of all things is near, uh, it will sober you up. And your prayers, assumed you'll be praying, and your prayers will be affected by that. In fact, the scripture itself ends with a prayer and a benediction. The prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus. So praying is assumed of Christians. It's just we're to do that. In fact, the scripture contains Bible accountants, I call them, little nerdy people that run around and count things in the Bible, um, of which I am one, um, say there are over 650 prayers in the scripture. And that doesn't even count the Psalms. Uh, that led Martin Luther to say this. He said, it's the business of the tailor to make clothes and cobblers to mend shoes so it is the business of Christians to pray. So what really is it, this praying? And very simply, we can say it's talking to God. It's, it's asking God for things. That's what prayer is. When Jesus was asked to teach the disciples to pray, he said, say this. So it's a speaking. It's, a, it's an expression of ourselves to God. That led the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith when they got to question number 98 which is what is prayer in the shorter catechism they put it uh, like this they said prayer is the offering of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies prayer is the offering of our desires unto God that's what it is. It's an, it's an offering of, of what's in us. It's an offering of our desires. And it's an offering of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with a confession of our sins uh, and with thankful acknowledgement of his, of his mercy. So it's this expression 
of our hearts toward God. Now, why, really, other than tradition and modeling and teaching of Jesus, why would these early disciples of Jesus be so devoted to prayer? What would motivate them? What would be in their very guts to say, if we don't pray, we'll die? I think this first. As they listened to the apostles teach, they would realize, on the one hand, their own need, and on the other, God's great wisdom, power, and love. On the one hand, they would realize, recognize their own need. As the apostles would begin to teach them, they would begin to tell them that you're to love each other as Christ has loved you. Anybody feel ready for that? Anybody feel able to do that? He would say, you're to walk, that is to live, as Jesus walked. As he is in the light, we are to be in the light. Anybody feel competent for that? They would speak to them of Jesus' teaching when Jesus said to them, you need to be poor in spirit. You need to be so sensitive to sin that you mourn over it. You need to be meek in your own spirit, your own heart towards each other, humble knowing who you are in the presence of God and allowing that to to define your life, allowing that to be revealed as you live before other people. You're to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the person you're to be. You're to be merciful as God has been merciful to you. You're to be merciful to others. You're to be pure in heart. You're to be a peacemaker. You're to be one who, when persecuted for the name of Christ rejoices you're to be salt on the earth and you're to be light that is your very presence should bring preservation should bring cleansing to places you should you should be light so that through you people would actually see God that's who you're to be he would say to them your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You're to be that righteous in your life. He says, not only are you not supposed to murder people, but you're to have control over your anger. Not only are you not to commit adultery, but you're not to lust. Not only are you not to divorce, but you're to be faithful to your spouse. Not only are you not to lie, but you're to be so reliable that your yes means yes and your no means no and everyone knows that. When someone attacks you, you're to turn the other cheek in graciousness and kindness towards them. You're to be generous in a sense to a fault. When people ask you, you're to give generously to them. You're not only to love your friends, but you're to love your enemies and those who come against you. And when you do acts of righteousness, like when you, when you give or when you pray or when you fast, you're to do it with such a pure heart that you're, the only person you care about seeing you is God so that he would be glorified and that he would be, and that he would be pleased. 
In fact, so conscious of the presence of God and your love for him is that your whole life is to be oriented around storing up treasures in heaven, uh, not on earth. That's the way you're to be, and, and, and you're never, ever to be anxious about anything. But rather, the whole course of your life is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trusting that everything that you need will be added unto you. That's the way your life is to be. And, and you needn't be judgmental because you've been forgiven. And you need to be so discerning that you would never cast the very pearls of God before those who would trample them under underfoot. Where do you go with that? What do you do with that? You kind of just kind of grit your teeth and say, okay, I'm up for this. Let's go be that. I think you hit your knees. I think you go before God and say, God, how am I going to do this? Because you see, coming to faith in Christ is, is, is a great act, if you will, of humility. It's admitting not only that I was wrong about this and that, but I was wrong about life. I was wrong about the orientation of life. I was wrong about how everything works. I was wrong about God. I was wrong about me. I was wrong about you. I was wrong about life itself. And that's a great act of humility. It's saying, in essence, that the best I can do on my own is to deserve to be judged, condemned by God. How adequate do you feel after that confession? And so then we go to him and we say, help me. As the author of Hebrews puts it, we don't have one who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who is able, in fact, to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been made like us yet without sin. And so we go to him, the very throne of grace, to see, to receive mercy and help in time of need. I think they did that. And they would know the greatness of God. They would be reminded of these great encouragements from Jesus to pray. Ask me. Ask me. You want to bear fruit? Ask me. You want to be this person? Ask me. And not only that, they were devoted to the fellowship as, as they heard the apostles teach. They would know their need. They would know the love and grace and mercy and power of God. And so they would go to him. But, but they were also knit together in love. And they would hear Jesus say, love each other as I have loved you. And in the midst of that, not only would they need help doing that, but their inadequacies would be revealed. Because the problems of people are bigger than we can manage. They're bigger than we can solve. Oh, oh they, they were great at meeting some of these material needs. You need something, I'll sell my whatever and give you the money and so you can, you can have. But there are deep needs that people have spiritually and emotionally and decisions that people have to make. And, 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 and when we share those with each other, we're often uh, confused. We don't know how to counsel. We don't know what is best. We don't know how to help. And when we're in a body together, we know that we're to weep with those who weep. Well, how can you weep with someone who's weeping without going to God and saying, please help them? How can you rejoice with someone who's rejoicing without going to God and saying, thanks, God. Way to go. They're really happy. And that makes me really happy. Thank you for working in their lives. You see, when people are, are committed to fellowship, when they're devoted to fellowship, they have to pray. That just, just comes out of the very nature of it. And, and then when they would come to the table and they would drink uh, wine and break bread together, then they would realize all that Christ had done for them. And in the midst of that, to even see their own sin and thus confess to pray 
confession. They would see the blessings that Christ had brought to them and thus pray to give thanks. And they would see that they were to proclaim his name, not only at the table, but everywhere. They would proclaim his name. And how weak do you feel when you realize that you're to be a proclaimer of the name of Christ? Because we're proclaiming the name of Christ to those, the scripture says, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Who's strong enough for that? We proclaim uh, the gospel to those whose eyes have been blinded uh, by Satan so that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Who's to overcome that blindness? Not me. And so we pray. When I was out in Phoenix a couple of weeks ago, I preached an ordination service uh, for David Zook. Some of you know David. He's been ordained. And I use this as my text um, in part from 2 Corinthians verse 2. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, do you realize that that you're to smell so much like Jesus that those who are perishing know that they're condemned and those who are being saved are assured of their salvation. And Paul says, who's up for that? Who can do that? And so I think as they would come to the table and they would realize... We're to proclaim the death of Jesus till he comes. How can we do that? And so they were sent to their knees. And they would pray. And of course prayer is is, is moved out of our very love for God. Think about all the things that he has said to us. How can we simply remain silent? How can we hear all that God is saying to us through Jesus and simply stay mute? It would be impossible in a relationship with a person, to have one who speaks so clearly and so lovingly and so kindly and so sufficiently to us and just simply sit there like a bump on a log and certainly they would devote themselves. I've got to say something to him. I've got to express something to him. I've got to express my thanks. I've got to confess my sins. I've got to ask him to help me to be the person uh, that he's called me to be. How can we remain mute? Can we say, please, this is what I want. Please help me. In this, please help my friends in this. Please, with your kingdom, grow. Indeed, their praying would glorify God, which would fulfill their very heart's desire. How does a sick person honor their doctor? By going to them and saying, please help me. You're the doctor. I'm sick. Help me. How does a student honor their teacher? By going to their teacher and saying, I don't understand this. You do. Please teach me. How do we honor God? We go to him and we say, I can't. I'm completely dependent upon you. You're the wise one. Please give me wisdom. You're the powerful one. Please strengthen me. That's how we do it, you see. And so prayer 
glorifies God. Great passage. They're all great, obviously. Um, For this point, Psalm 50, verse 15. uh, God says, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Our role in all of this is to get into trouble and ask God to deliver us. Fairly easy for us. So that when he delivers us from our trouble, then we glorify him. He loves to be asked. And so to ask is to know who he's called us to be and see our need and go to him. And it glorifies him to ask on behalf of others in whom we're with in fellowship who have needs and we can't meet them and we know that so we go to him God please I love them as Christ has loved them and I'm at a loss please help them they're weeping please help them when we come around the table our proclamation of the gospel how are we ever going to be heard God please move in the hearts of lost people so that when we proclaim the gospel They will hear it. Father, work in the hearts of saved people so that when we proclaim the gospel, they'll rejoice because they'll know it. Make me smell like Jesus. Make me the aroma of Christ to you so that when I'm walking around, God, you smell me and you go, oh, yes, Ah, it's my son. And when we're in the midst of people, that they too would know your very presence among us. And of course, as the Westminster Divine said, prayer is the offering of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. Of course. When we pray, we always pray, your will be done. That isn't a lack of faith to say, God, here's my desires, but whatever you will, that's a a prayer of faith. It's 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 an expression to say, you know, I, I don't know everything that's going on here, God, but you do. But this is my sense of things. And so here, I'm just talking this out with you. I'm praying, I'm requesting. Ah, But but if this isn't your will, all right, I'll submit to you in the same way that Jesus prayed in the garden. It isn't a lack of faith, it's great faith to pray like that. And you say, well, how do we know what God's will is? Well, in the one sense, we only know God's will after the fact, after it happens. He ordains all things that come to pass. When they come to pass, we say that's his will in that sense. But there's also a way to know God's heart. And that's through the scripture. As we meditate upon his word, as he gives us commands, we know that we're to love. We know that we're to forgive. We know that we're to be kind. We know that we're to be patient. We know that we're to be trusting. We know all these things that come to us from the scriptures. And so those we know are his will. We can pray those and trust that he'll work that in us. We don't always know the will of circumstances and what's really going to happen. I don't know when I pray for a sick person if they're going to get healed or not in that moment or until they see him in glory. I don't know which job a particular person should have or even that I should have. This is not in the Bible. It says, Bill, you should do this. Or who she should marry or who she should date or any of those kinds of sort of subjective kinds of things. But we learn the wisdom of God. And so we pray around those things. God, I desire to be married. Here are the, here, here are the qualities of that I should have to be a good husband. Here's the qualities of what I would love in a wife, so would you provide this for me, your will, not mine, or a job, or whatever it happens to be. But you may say, why pray at all? 
Because, of course, we don't pray because God doesn't know what we need. We're not informing him of stuff he doesn't know. He knows what we're going to ask even before we ask it. And we don't pray because God doesn't know what he should do. That would be frightening. Um, Hey, God, I know this is confusing. It's hard for you. But trust me, uh, here's what you should do in this situation. We don't pray because of that. But we pray for all of these reasons because how can we not? It's just the very expression of our heart to God. Our own need is greatness for his glory and expression of our love. But also this, the prayer is a means through which God's will is done. God not only ordains the end result, but he ordains the way to get there. For instance, in Acts 2 we read that God had ordained that Jesus would be crucified. He also ordained the means, which was by the hands of wicked men. We know that God ordains, appoints some to eternal life. The means that they get there is by people sharing the gospel with them. And prayer is a means like that. That God uses this means of praying to accomplish his will. Now you say, does that mean that God never does anything until someone prays? That his will won't be done unless people pray? Or if we wanted to say it more positively, that God will always get someone to pray before he does his will? I'm not smart enough to answer any of those. Okay? So you're on your own with those. But this is true. The prayer is a means that God uses in order to accomplish his will, your will be done. And so in the midst of praying, we're joined together with God in his great work. That's why they, we should be devoted to prayer. The Westminster Divines in their little answer, number 98, <clears throat> said... The prayer is our expressing our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ. A uh, little expression in Jesus' name, you know, we kind of tack on to the end of our prayers, and that's a good thing. Um, Brian Chappell, president of Covenant Seminary, wrote a book recently called Praying Backwards. He says we should start in Jesus' name rather than end in Jesus' name. Uh, because our whole prayer is to be permeated by that. Because when we pray in Jesus' name, first of all, we're praying in the authority of Jesus, His authorization. We don't come authorizing ourselves, Oh God, please receive me because I deserve to be in your presence and you should listen to me. We come in His name, His authorization, His authority. He says, if you've been cleansed by my blood, then you belong to my Father and, and you've been justified by faith and you have peace with God and access to Him as your Father. And so we come by His authorization and we come in His name. That is, we come saying that whatever isn't consistent with the name of Jesus, whatever isn't consistent with the character of Christ, 
Whatever isn't consistent with the will of Christ, please don't do. And so I'm coming in the name of Jesus. And all that you remember was exemplified on that night that Jesus took bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on that night as well, he took the cup. And after giving thanks again, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Now I want to ask you this. When you see this, and in a minute when you touch it and when you smell it, when you taste it. What does that cause you to pray? What is your prayer when you see all of this? So let me ask you to bow your heads. Okay? I want you to think about this. I want you to remember Jesus. I want you to remember his presence with us right now. So this is my body, this is my blood. Now we know it's not literal, but we know that he said that so that he could let us know that he's right here. This very one that said, ask anything in my name, and I'll do it. And we know that as we remember him, we think of his death on the cross. What does that cause you to confess as your sins? For what does that cause you to give thanks? Forgiveness of sins? That God has declared you righteous in his sight because of Jesus? That he's adopted you as his child so that he is your father so you can pray to him and have access to him and know that whatever happens in the course of your life isn't punishment, isn't condemnation but it's his discipline and training and help to you that he's sanctifying you, making you holy, conforming you to the image of Jesus. Give thanks for that. To give thanks to know that when you die, you'll be in his presence. To give thanks to know that a day will come when you'll have an imperishable body. To give thanks to him to know that you'll live with him forever. To give thanks to know that you have something of great value that you can share with your friends and your family, your children the whole world. What does it cause you to pray when you remember Jesus and to think how you're to live? That you might pray for his strength, his help, his wisdom, his love, to walk as he walked. What does it cause you to pray when you think about other people, other believers whom you love and their needs?
does it think about when you see this and smell this and ready yourself to taste it? When you remember Jesus and you think we're to proclaim his death till he comes, what does it make you think about all those who need to hear the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Father in heaven, we confess our sins. The Father that we would proclaim the truth of Christ to those who need to hear and that you would empower us to be the aroma of Christ before you and before others. Father, that we would indeed look forward to a day when we'll be with you when Christ returns, when we will see all of his work come to consummation and fruition that we might glorify you and rejoice in you forever. Father, I pray you'd set aside this bread, this juice, that we might know that we're in the very presence of Jesus, that we might meet with him here, that we might be encouraged, that we might be strengthened, that we might have renewed to us all that is ours in him. And this we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. But it's the table of Jesus, and he's the one who invites you to it. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight, without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who believe and depend upon him as he's offered to us in the gospel, as the savior of sinners. And all who therefore then desire to live as one who is a follower of Christ. So let me ask you to come, these two sections down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And pray, please come.